Lisa Bond says, never waste a good pandemic. And I think what she means by that is don't waste a crisis as an opportunity to rethink who you are and what God is calling you to be. So the staff has been doing that, trying to think about the rebirth of the church. But as we think about the rebirth of the church after this pandemic, we're not without a blueprint. We've been looking at the story of the birth of the church as that comes to us from the book of the Acts of the Apostles, including the story from Acts 19. I've never heard a sermon about the seven sons of Sceva, so I thought I'd preach one. Let me know what you think about this story. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that when the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus Paul proclaims come out of him. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit said to the seven sons of Sceva, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leapt upon them, mastered them all, and so overpowered them that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. When this became known to the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, everyone was awestruck, and the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, a man named Sceva is a high priest to the Greek goddess Artemis, whom the Romans called Diana, the goddess of the hunt, very popular in Ephesus. So, the seven sons of Sceva, these seven preacher's kids, look at St. Paul healing all these sick and casting out all these demons and winning over the hearts of the folk, and they say to themselves, well, there must be something to this Jesus business, so they try casting out demons themselves. So they come upon this guy who apparently is already demon-possessed, who knows what's really wrong with him. Maybe he's epileptic, or maybe he's schizophrenic, or maybe he's merely one of the unhinged homeless, hurling obscene epithets at innocent passers-by on the streets of every big town. But in any case, these seven sons of Sceva approach this lone lunatic but he goes on a rampage and overpowers all seven of them, and they go screaming from the scene, overpowered. This is another example of Luke's wry sense of humor. This is funnier than Eutychus falling asleep and out the window during Paul's interminable sermon at Troas. This lone lunatic, this solitary schizophrenic, approaches the seven sons of Sceva and says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? You see what happens, right? These imposters are pretending. They know nothing about Jesus. And the dark forces of the world always know when we're counterfeits, when we're just pretending, when there's no connection between Jesus and us. 
Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? I. There's a sermon in that question, right? Do the demons know our names? Now, don't let the archaic vocabulary and obsolete metaphors of this ancient story throw you off. When we come upon that archaic word demon, read the dark and twisted forces of the world that try to cripple human nature. These gigantic forces can be invisible and elusive and inchoate, and we don't know how to confront them. And when the Bible encounters such a force, it uses the word demon. So think the dark and twisted forces that cripple human nature. Jesus they know, and Paul they know, but they, do they know us? Last week we talked about our ministry of inreach, that introverted ministry by which we serve the people we love, the people we know, the people we sit next to in the pew every Sunday. This week I want to talk about outreach, that part of our ministry whereby we don't even know, people we haven't even met yet, because the church exists for those who are not members of it yet, right? And in every Christian congregation, the ministry of outreach has to have two aspects. It needs charity and justice. That is to say, it needs to have a micro and a macro dimension, a local and a global dimension, a personal and a social dimension. Charity is outreach at the personal level. Charity is the generous heart transformed under the influence of the Nazarene, where we try to be not only generous, but wise philanthropists, choosing those agencies and institutions that we're sure will make the world a finer, lovelier, kinder place. One of the reasons I accepted your call to become your pastor seven years ago was that I discovered that you gave away $500,000 to outreach agencies in Chicagoland every year. That's quite extraordinary for a church like ours. Plus, I have fallen in love with your generous endowment. The beauty of a church like this with an endowment is that we don't even have to quit giving when we're dead. We can give a pile of money to this church when we die and our great-grandchildren we will be able to keep giving in 2075. Oh, and by the way, the uh, retirement gift you presented to Marlene and Gil Bowen in 2007 when they retired, that retirement gift was the most brilliant stewardship project I've ever heard anything about. Maybe this is common in the Christian church, but I've never encountered any of this, anything like this before. You collected this purse, this generous purse of lots of money, way over seven figures, and you gave it to Gil and Marlene Bowen, pastors here for 38 years, but you didn't give it to them to spend the way they wanted. You gave it to them so that they could continue to be servants of Jesus and brilliant stewards of God's money way after their retirement. And so for the last 14 years, Marlene and Gil have been giving that money away like crazy, but they can't keep up. There's still $3 million in that fund. You know, our trustee, Scott Bondurant, teaches a course every year at Northwestern University. It's called The History of Investing. Great course. And Scott quotes Albert Einstein towards his 
uh, students every fall, every semester at Northwestern. He quotes Dr. Einstein, the greatest miracle in the history of the world is what? General relativity? Special relativity? No, compound interest. (laughs) Greatest miracle in the history of the world. So that Bowen Fund is an example of that miracle. There's still all that money. That money will be funding Chicagoland agencies and institutions generation after generation. And what about the institutions that Kenilworth Union, we with our own outreach, $500,000 a year, and Bill and Marlene with their separate money, what about those institutions? Do the forces of darkness know their names? You know, uh, Night Ministry, Refugee One, Sarah's Circle. Do the forces of darkness say to them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? No, they do not. They know the names of those agencies. So charity is one aspect of every church's outreach. Charity is justice at the personal level. But we also need to have a larger dimension, a social dimension of our outreach. And that's sometimes called just charity addresses the effects of homelessness, poverty, and ignorance. Justice, on the other hand, addresses the causes of poverty, homelessness, and ignorance, for example. And this is at least as important to our ministry as our personal charity. William Sloan Coffin used to talk about the pinched, pallid, pygmy world of private piety. Yes? You know what he means? Prayer is a wonderful thing. We ought to do it every day. Divine worship is a wonderful thing. We ought to be at it every seven days. Personal charity is a wonderful thing. But these are all private, internal things. Our outreach ministry in a church like this needs to have a public dimension. It needs to address the causes, not just the effects of ignorance, homelessness, and poverty. Martin Luther King used to say, any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of human beings and is not concerned about the social and economic conditions that scar those souls is a moribund religion just waiting for the day to be buried. Do you hear the way he talks about it? Moribund. And so when politicians perpetuate monstrous lives, if the church doesn't speak out, whoever will. Does the demon of environmental destruction know our name? We have a green team. It's a start. Does the demon of racism know our name? We have a racial justice commission. It's a start. Years ago, I read this interesting book with the striking title, Hitler's Pope. How's that for a striking title? A Pope that belongs to Hitler. It's about Eugenio Pacelli, who became Pope Pius XII in 1939, and who has been famous ever since for what he did not say and did not do. So during his papacy from the heart of the Axis Empire in Rome, the whole world knew what was going on. In 1941, in September, Hitler made all the Jews wear yellow stars. In November of 1941, Joseph Goebbels said, every Jew is our enemy. 
And then in 1942, the final solution engaged in high gear with daily death trains to Auschwitz and Treblinka. Everybody knew what was going on. FDR knew. Churchill knew. Pius XII knew from his seat in Rome. And yet he said nothing. He managed to muster nothing but harmless, bland truisms. Benito Mussolini famously and derisively scoffed at the trite truisms that the vicar of Christ managed to unleash, unleash from Rome. Did the demon of Nazism know Pius' name? No. Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? said Hitler to Pius. One more thing and then I'll quit. Do you know this fine film, Amazing Grace, about William Wilberforce, the very wealthy, well-heeled member of British Parliament who finally, after a patient, relentless 19-year struggle, finally was able to end the slave trade in England in 1807. William Wilberforce was a serious Christian. He was an evangelical Christian. He was devout. He was pious. He was very religious. He'd come under the influence of John Newton, the former slave trader who came up with the famous hymn later. William Wilberforce loved to sing. He especially loved to sing Amazing Grace. And so when once early in his political career he was tempted to give up public policy because he'd run up against this thick wall of opposition to the abolition of the slave trade. And he was tempted to retreat into that pallid, pinch, pygmy world of private piety. His best friend, William Pitt, future prime minister, when William Pitt heard William Wilberforce singing Amazing Grace, William Pitt said, Wilbur, do you intend to use your beautiful voice to praise the Lord or to change the world? Praising the Lord is a wonderful thing. We should do it every day. But changing the world, that's what we're here for. Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.